But here's the question. If God's speaking to me through the Bible, hasn't he been speaking to people through the Bible for the last 2,000 years? Yeah. And if that's the case, why should I make him repeat himself? Welcome to the Bud Zone Podcast. I'm Bud, your host. The Bud Zone Podcast is for, from, and by saints, our buds in the faith to edify one another in the faith and to encourage one another to love and good works. We discuss the world, we discuss the church, we discuss the faith, we discuss truth, and we do it with the mind of Christ. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this episode of the Bud Zone Podcast. We are Especially blessed today to have a brother who is a scholar, a historian, uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine, with me today. Glenn, thank you very much for your time. I am excited to have a conversation with you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, let me give uh, our listeners a, uh, a brief biography, and I am going to take this from uh, the back cover of your book, Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. Here's who it tells us you are, and you can augment this as you see fit. But it says Dr. Glenn S. Sunshine is professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, an award-winning author, and I've read a number of your works. Glenn has written about history, theology, and culture online and on both sides of the Atlantic. His book, Why You Think the Way You Do, The Story of Western Worldviews from Rome to Home, received the 2006 Acton Institute Book Grant. Now, that's your biography there. What else would you add to it? Well, what I would do, first of all, is correct it a little bit. I am no longer a professor of history at Central. I'm a professor emeritus at Central, which is another way of saying I retired. You retired. Um Yes, so I'm no longer working for uh, the university. However, I am now a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries in Atlanta, working under Dr. Ken Boa. Excellent. And I might also add, because I'm a listener, you're one of the three wise men on Theology Pugcast, so you, Tom Price, and C.R. Wally. The, the problem I have with that podcast, just honestly, is I listen to it normally when I'm commuting, so I don't have access to a dictionary right at hand to be able to... <laughs> what does this <Yeah>. mean? <laughs> well, uh, I would actually refer to us more as the three wise guys than the three wise The men. three wise guys, I like that. <laughs> yeah, so... How long have you guys been doing that podcast? Uh, I think it's about three years now. Three years? Okay. Excellent yeah. stuff. I mean, really. And the name came because we started recording it in a pub that was called The Corner Pug. So we decided to call it the Theology Pugcast. Okay. And, well, and sort of the shtick was we're sitting around in a, uh, a pub shooting the breeze. <laughs> and you know, so if you listen to the episodes, you'll actually hear the, uh, the waitress come up and inter- take our beer order and things like that. So Wonderful. Well, I was going to ask who had the pug, but uh, now you've explained it, so I get it. Right. Wonderful. Before we get into the discussion that I really want to have with you, which is largely about slaying Leviathan and Protestant resistance theory, I, I want to get a little bit more a broad opinion from you on the matter of, of Christianity and history. One of the things that I want to point out to people, you guys need to go read this man, 
even though you're writing history and you've got a lot of historical narrative, what I find so helpful is the way that every now and then you inject a little bit of jocularity and kind of pithy little, and, and I actually want to share share a couple of them so people will get a sense of this. It's not boring history that is difficult to read. It is certainly edifying to read uh, as a Christian, but it's really fun. And so here's a few things I've taken out, and this is from your book called A Brief Introduction to the Reformation. I'm not even sure when this was published, but 2017. Okay, there is one part where you are um, speaking of Pope Alexander VI and discussing the issue of nepotism. And you're talking about Rodrigo had not been, uh, you know, a uh, priest when he was a cardinal. Illegitimacy barred you from being a priest. And then you put in this little line there. But being a pope means you never have to say you're sorry. And I kind of guffawed when I saw that. I'm like, well, this is not a historical narrative. You're just making an observation. Hilarious. Um, another one you've got where you're talking about the Dominicans, and particularly Tetzel. You said one of them, jo- Johann Tetzel, was a master of the hard sell and was generally the sort of person who would give a used car salesman a bad name. He literally would tell his listeners that his indulgences were so good that even if you had violated the Blessed Virgin Mary herself, this would get you off the hook. <laughs> yeah, That is not actually an exaggeration at all he literally said he literally that. did that no i know but you yeah. put it in such so. a way that this is so engaging um the last one which i w- i wanted to find offensive in sort of a cultural appropriation sort of way because that's you know hip and chic right now but you're uh you're talking about luther and uh the Leipzig debate and, you know, that it was clear to him his ideas didn't fit in with Catholic theology, however however much he thought that they might, and you say, but as they say in Wisconsin, you can always tell a German, but you can't tell him much. I'm like, this is just hilarious, and it makes it really engaging. So I just want to tell you, thank you for that. And if there actually is a spiritual gift uh, of making history interesting you've got that gift so folks need to read you because you're you're very engaging well i've always said that history isn't boring historians are boring and you know the object is you know okay i am a scholar i've got my phd i can write academic prose sure but the way i figure if i write for a layman an interested layman yeah the scholars are most likely going to be able to follow it so why not write for the layperson in a way that's accessible? Amen. That's always my goal. Well, you've broadened your audience there, and you've proven yourself the exception to the stodgy academic sort of august uh, provenance. But it's it's wonderful. Now let let me let me read this to you. I want to get your take on this because it speaks about history more broadly. Um, and I took this from the shorter collected writings of J. Gresham Machen. Here's an excerpt. I, uh, we'll set it up. Uh, May the 3rd, 1915, Machen was giving an inaugural address at his installation at Princeton Theological Seminary when he was being installed as assistant professor of New Testament. He, here are the opening words of his address, and this is what I'd like to get you to kind of engage with just briefly. Quote, the student of the New Testament should primarily be a historian. The center and core of all the Bible is history, 
Everything else that the Bible contains is fitted into a historical framework and leads up to a historical climax. The Bible is primarily a record of events. Well, I think he's absolutely correct. I think one of the problems that we have, um, and we can talk about where this comes from and why, but one of the problems we have as uh, evangelicals, for example, would be that we focus so much on Paul's doctrinal teaching that we ignore the fact that that doctrine is anchored in history. Nothing that Paul says makes any sense at all divorced from the historical events of Jesus's birth, well, actually the entire history of Israel from Abraham on, Yeah. Um, but particularly the historical events surrounding Jesus's birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Cut off that history, and Paul is nonsense. Very true. So, so but but we tend to think of Paul as presenting a doctrinal system. That's not really what Paul is doing. You can derive a doctrinal system from Paul, but what Paul is doing is reflecting on the implications of a series of historical events. So the church has largely has largely looked at Paul incorrectly, not not necessarily incorrectly, but incompletely. Yeah, I, I would prefer incompletely correctly, yeah. And how has this happened? How has this disregard for history, not only in the hermeneutic, not only in the interpretation, but more broadly, even subsequent to the closing of the canon, it's like we've just sort of dispensed with all the history. And when the Lord tells us through Paul, actually, that he's given gifts of pastors and teachers, he didn't just do that in the first century. He's continued to do that through two millennia, but we tend to disregard the events and the leading of the Holy Spirit through the ecclesiastical history, and we do that to our own peril. Yeah, I, I think, though, that there there's a really good reason why that happened. Um, a point that uh, Rodney Stark makes is he mm-hmm. says, all right, there are two kinds of religions out there, particularly with monotheistic religions. You have religions of orthodoxy, which is to say religions that focus on right belief, and there are religions of orthopraxy, or I would say orthopraxis. That is to say religions that focus on right behavior or right approaches uh, to living out whatever it is that you believe. And the distinction between the two, you know, in the case of Christianity, can be overdrawn. But he points out that when you look at Judaism and Islam, the question of orthopraxy is, is foremost. What is it that you do to be a faithful Jew, to be a faithful Muslim? In Christianity, historically, the great battles have been battles over ideas. Hmm. What is the right thing to believe? Now, that doesn't mean that right practice isn't part of Christianity, but Christianity is almost unique in being a religion of orthodoxy. The great fights over the faith are fights over doctrine. And as a result, it, you know, just look at the early centuries of the church. Who is Jesus? You know, is he a spiritual being who only appears to be human? Is mm. he a human being who is also something more? If he is something more, what more is he? Is he an angel? Is he the first created being and therefore the highest of all created beings? Um, is he God incarnate? Who is he? Those ideas are the things that divided the church. As a result, the church has, I think, properly up to a point to emphasize ideas and doctrine 
with the result that sometimes we can, well, I think it's especially a problem for the evangelical world, but we can forget the anchoring in history. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why it's especially a problem in the evangelical world is unlike, let's say, Catholicism or the Orthodox Church or Lutherans or Anglicans Mm -hmm. or whatever, they have the church year, and they use year as a way of ordering the worship of the church, but that church year is also very firmly anchored in history. Right. So, Advent uh, is a reflection on the centuries preceding the coming of Christ and the long waiting for his arrival, but also simultaneously looking ahead and longing for his second coming, the way the people of ancient Israel longed for the arrival of the Messiah in the first place. You know, uh, Epiphany is associated not only with the wise men, but with the baptism of Jesus. Then you go to Lent, which is going to be a lot of reflections on Jesus' life and teaching leading up to Passion Week. You know, so you're constantly reminded of historical events as you work through this, and particularly the history of Jesus's, the promise of the coming of the mm-hmm. Messiah, Jesus' birth, his baptism, his life and teachings, his, his crucifixion, death, resurrection, ascension, and then at Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit. So there's an anchoring through the church year mm-hmm. that in sort of the minimalist approach that's taken by a lot of evangelicals and, frankly, a lot of Reformed guys, um, this sort of minimalist approach tends to cut you off from that anchoring in history. Okay, I, I think I would agree with that largely. You're the scholar, and I can actually see that. And and I'm in a Reformed church. I mean, we're in a Reformed, but it is not as um, vigorously uh, driven by that kind of church calendar response. Although, you know, my pastor is extremely well literate with history. He does a church his story podcast of his own, uh, and it's you know, he peppers his sermons with applications, both from scriptural history and, and post-scriptural history. So um, it it gives you a fullness, not only of the doctrine that you're being taught, it, it's kind of the pendulum. It's like, kind of like what you see with Paul. He's going to give you doctrine, and then he's going to give you the orthopraxy. He's going to give you the application. Here are the implications of what you know, uh, and it right. should have a transforming effect on your life and obedience uh, not that you're you're not earning favor, but you, this is what the effect is, right? And and, and again, not all of the reform guys are going to go to the extreme. But I've been in churches where, uh, when Easter Sunday came up, they just got the pastor literally got up and said, "Isn't it a great thing that we don't have to make a great a big deal about Easter Sunday? Because for us, every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday." Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah, in a sense, yes, but in another sense, you're sort of missing the point. Yeah, yeah. It's Now, I'm going to make a plea to go beyond that, though. It's also important to realize that the implications of Scripture are not obvious at first glance, and they certainly weren't obvious to the people in the first, second, third centuries. They had to wrestle with what God revealed in Scripture— to come up with a more complete understanding of what was in there. Mm -hmm. Rodney Stark, again, if I can cite him in the Victory of Reason, says, you know, the thing about the scriptures 
is that they don't give you direct answers to a lot of really obvious and important questions. And what they do instead is they invite you to wrestle with the material to, to understand it. Mm-hmm. And he believes that, that that theological activity of wrestling with the scripture to come up with the right answers to important questions is actually the reason why the Western cultures have a, an emphasis on reason. He says it doesn't come from the Greeks. It actually comes from the Christian theologians wrestling with scripture. Mm-hmm. So we also have to pay attention not just to biblical history, but to church history as a whole. You know, if you t- and, and again, I, I was um, at one time one of these people who said, yeah, all I need is the Bible. I don't need this church history stuff. Um, God, in his sense of humor, made me a church historian. <laughs> but, but the way I, I would put this is, you know, as this young kind of naive evangelical, I believed that, you know, God would speak to me through the Bible. And that's true. But here's the question. If God's speaking to me through the Bible, hasn't he been speaking to people through the Bible for the last 2,000 years? Yeah. And if that's the case, why should I make him repeat himself? Why not benefit from the insights that he gave to people before me and then build on those or, um, you know, use those as part of my foundation? Not that they have the same authority as Scripture, but the fact of the matter is uh, there are a lot of people who thought long and hard about Scripture for centuries, and I should really benefit from their reflections on it rather than just take this me and Jesus kind of approach that I thought was the right thing when I was in college. I think that's profound, uh, and it speaks to, you know, the Lord has been building his church for 2,000 years now, and he, d- he right. does everything through means, and the means are men like you who are here today um, exposing further doctrine, further implications of what Scripture doesn't just have lying on the surface, but is evident there when you've done when you've done the diligent work to see what the Lord has has done elsewhere. One of the things that I've learned as I've taught the Bible over the years is that if you go into Scripture one inch, you can feel like you really understand it. If you go into it a foot, you begin recognizing that it's a yard deep. Mm-hmm. And if you go a yard deep, you begin realizing it's a mile deep. The further you go in, the more you realize the depths that are there that you're not even beginning to plumb. Yeah. It's one of the really unique things, it seems to me, about Scripture. It's why, after 2,000 after two years, we can continue going to it and digging more and more and more out of it. But the more we are aware of what's been done before, the deeper we can take it. Yes. Yeah, and we live in such a, an evangelical culture of pietism that, that necessarily de-emphasizes that. It is that sort of no creed but the Bible. Um, I, I don't need all these other things. Well, you're jeopardizing your own sanctification in the first place, but also your effectiveness for the kingdom uh, beyond that sort of navel-gazing kind of focus you've got. Now, let's discuss... Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. This was published uh, 2020, I think, by uh, Canon Press. Why this book? Well, the 
book began actually as a series of articles, actually two series of articles that I wrote in the first and second Obama administrations. Okay. Uh, and the reason I wrote those articles is I was seeing growing hostility to Christianity and growing attacks on the ability of people to live out their faith as a result of policies within the government. You know, eliminating conscience provisions for medical professionals with respect to uh, abortifacients, you know, in the case of pharmacists, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. And so I thought that what we needed was some sort of um, thinking through of how we as Christians should respond to that. Then when the podcast started, I did an episode on resistance theory, and it proved to be for a long time the most popular episode. Uh, more people downloaded it than anything else we had done. And that said to me that there were, at, even at that point, there were a lot of people who were beginning to wrestle with this issue, with the net result that I decided it was time to dust off those articles and rework them uh, with a lot of extra material um, into, into the book, because it seemed to me there was a hunger for it, a demand for it. And had I known the way things would be heading politically, I would have said there was a real need for it at this point, because... We are in a situation where we're facing an increasingly hostile culture and political environment. Mm -hmm. Well, it was certainly prescient because 2021 rolls around and you suddenly have all of this onerous, pandemic-driven um, oversight by magistrates from the top down. And uh, so you've put something out there in 2020, the year before, and developed from the Obama administration work that you had done that really speaks to the circumstance that the church has been in in the last two years uh how do we respond to that i mean you guys have spoken about the romans 13 issue i've heard you speak about it in other lectures so the church has really wrestled with that i think part of the reason that it has wrestled with that is because it first of all does not know the history of the church in dealing with this kind of circumstance in, in our lifetime, we really haven't had this. We've seen this sort of increasing, as you did, this sort of increasing hostility and restrictions that were coming at, at Christianity broadly and maybe in, in specific circumstances towards churches individually. But uh, this whole pandemic thing presented an opportunity for a power grab in what is largely a statist environment, both, I would argue, in the church and outside of the church, how would you summarize Christian resistance theory or Protestant resistance theory? What, what are we talking about here, and is it biblical? Okay, I would say, actually, we have to back up one step and ask the question, what is the biblical understanding of the authority of government? And I would, for that, I would go back to Jesus, always a good idea, Yeah. who... Um, who, okay, think about the time when they ask him if it's legal to pay taxes to Caesar. Um, this was a, a no-win question. Um, if Jesus said yes, he'd lose support among the Jews who didn't like paying taxes to Caesar. If he said no, he'd be arrested for sedition. Yes. I mean, it was a trap. Um, and, and But Jesus rather masterfully got out of it uh, with his answer, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. Now, there's more going on there where he asks him, show me this coin whose image is on it. That's sort of a hint about graven images. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, so, th so there's more happening here. But the, I think Jesus here is articulating something that goes way beyond taxes. What he is saying is that there are some things that properly belong to Caesar, but not everything does. There are some things that belong to Caesar, but there are other things that belong to God. Um, and I would add probably other people beside God as well that are not under government. Mm -hmm. And it's important also to remember that God's the one who determines what's his and what's Caesar's. Right. Okay. So, the first question we always need to be asking that we never ask is, does this belong to Caesar? Does this particular point, is this before the face of God, is this something that God has assigned to Caesar? If it is not something that God gives to Caesar, then before God, should we listen to Caesar if, in fact, it is something that God reserves for himself and does not give authority to Caesar, then obeying Caesar is disobeying God. If we obey Caesar in a situation where it's not directly God's authority, but it is someone else's authority that God has established, let's say the parents of children, right? if we obey Caesar rather than giving the parents their rightful due then we are also disobeying God because God owes responsibilities to parents and so on. But Romans 13. Yes. And for some reason, people think Romans 13 is the governing principle behind everything having to do with church-state relations. It isn't. Romans 13 establishes, first of all, a critical principle that the government's responsibility is to reward the good and to punish the evil. What happens when the government rewards the evil and punishes the good? Yeah. Do we still obey Caesar? Obviously not. So what happens when the government begins demanding things that are not properly its due, that are not properly its responsibility, that are not properly its to command? Obeying the government then becomes actually an idolatrous act. Wow. So the churches, when the mandates came with regards to you can't worship. Right. I would say that the churches needed to do what MacArthur did, who has got, got a lot of flack for it. Yeah. But who said, no, you cannot tell us not to worship. No, by the way, you can't tell us not to sing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because singing is commanded in Scripture. Right. You can't tell us not to do that. Now, if the leadership of the church makes decisions about proper order of worship and things like that in the event of a pandemic, the leadership of the church has authority to regulate worship in the church, although I would say they need to do it according to Scripture and not ignore things that Scripture commands. So, for example, banning the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper? Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Banning singing, which is commanded hundreds of times in Scripture, if you take into account the Psalms, that's a problem. So, but they, have, are, but they arrived at this conclusion largely on a misunderstood interpretation of Romans 13 and, right. and Peter. Uh, I mean, so... It's. I mean, I was on the wrong. I was on the side of this. No, we're not going to shut down, and and our church didn't. But, 
but so many did. And it's like, my goodness, you guys are statists. I mean, this is really where you're operating from. Consider the early church. The state said, thou shalt not worship. What did the early church do? Yeah, they went underground. They, They went underground and they worshiped anyway. Yeah. You know, I would argue that this is a very similar sort of situation. Now, again, you can make public health arguments and things like that, but I think that's a matter for the leadership of the church to decide for the state to dictate. It was very convenient for the church to go to second great commandment, you know, love your neighbor. And we're going to do this out of an abundance of caution. We don't want our Mm. people to get, okay, but you can't invert the first commandment, the first great commandment and the second great commandment. You've just suddenly violated both when you get those things out of order. Right. Well, and let let me point out that there are times legitimate for churches to say we're not holding service. Sure. I'm in Florida, so if if we've got a hurricane barreling at us, we're probably not going to worship. Or where we are, ice storms, blizzards, things like that. We're just simply not, but that's on an individual week-by-week basis. It's not a generic you are thou shalt not get together until the government says you can do this. Yeah, right. Now, like I said, church leaders have responsibilities, but it's their responsibility, not the state, to make these determinations. And to simply adopt what the state tells you to adopt, I do not think is appropriate. Because it is not the state's job to regulate worship. This is one of the places where I'm going to have a bit of a disagreement with the Westminster Standards. Uh, I I don't think that's the state's job. I think it's the church's job to do that. Now, there are a variety of reasons why you can make an argument that the Westminster Standards applied in their day, but not in ours in America. We don't have a state church the way they did in England. Yeah. You know, I mean, so they're, they're sort, we're in sort of a different situation. But in our situation, I don't think that's the responsibility of the state. And I think the state is usurping what belongs to God when they do that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we won't go down that rabbit trail, but there is a distinction between, I guess, the American Westminster and and the original Westminster and the language that speaks to that position and power and and influence of the magistrate on the church. And they're a little bit different, but that's a different uh, topic. So give us a a, a description, a definition. What is Protestant resistance theory? Um, Protestant resistance theory is um, a a set of ideas that developed starting with uh, during the Protestant Reformation that asked the question: When is it legitimate to take active steps to resist the government? And uh, you know, well, let, let's just give a little bit of background. Luther's ideas were adopted by a number of the princes in the Holy Roman Empire. Holy Roman Empire wasn't really an empire, it was a confederation. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Voltaire once commented that it was a triple misnomer. It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. Um, it, it's really a, a coalition of states, and a number of those states adopted Lutheran ideas. The emperor, however, said, no, you can't do that. You have to stay Catholic. So a bunch, and it was clear that the emperor was quite willing to use force to bring the back into the Catholic fold. So a number of Lutheran princes got together in something called the Schmalkaldic League, 
where they agreed on a basically mutual defense pact. If the emperor attacked one of them, all of the others would come to their defense. Because otherwise, they figured the emperor would pick them off one, after, one at a time. They came to his blessing, and Luther said, no, Romans 13, can't do that. So they did the only thing that made sense. They sent in the lawyers, uh, who then uh, argued the point with Luther. And they said, um, in essence, you know, Luther, okay, Luther, Romans 13 applies in the general case, but in the case of the empire, you're ignoring the fact that the emperor is in elected position. You're also ignoring the fact that the princes are the ones who elect them. Therefore, they have a duty to oversee them. Furthermore, that the princes are, in fact, governing authorities on terms of Romans 13. So in view of all of this, um, really, the Schmalkaldic League makes sense. And Luther uh, was convinced by their arguments. And in a thing called the Torgel Memorandum issued in 1530-31, uh, he said that, um, okay, given the arguments here, if resistance by the princes is legal, then it is theologically acceptable. And so this is the beginning of something known as the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, which says that when a superior magistrate, a higher governing official, violates the law, breaks his word, something like that, then lower governing officials, lesser magistrates, have the right to resist. And in some cases, not just the right to resist, but the duty to resist. So this would be, for example, if the president issues a uh, mandate, state governors have the right to say no. Mm -hmm. If the state governor issues a, uh, a mandate, uh, sheriffs, for example, can say no, or county officials or mayors or whatever. Right. Okay, so that's the basic idea. Now, in the case of resistance theory, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate goes far enough as to say, at need, they can actually take up arms to resist. Okay. Okay. So that's the beginning of it. And in most cases, that's the form resistance theory takes. In Britain, it begins to change. And the reason it begins to change is ideas that come in from Calvin. Calvin noted that in Exodus, when God set up a government for Israel, he did it on the basis of a covenant. He set up a covenant that the people had to ratify. It's worth noting that the, the covenant at Sinai didn't go into effect until the people had agreed three times to abide by the terms of it. Right. So Calvin concluded on this basis that government had to be based on the consent of the governed. That wasn't an entirely new idea, but also that it needed to be based on covenant, because if God himself governs people through a covenant, then earthly kingdoms should govern on the basis of covenant as well. Now, when you combine that with resistance theory, in most places, they're still going to argue for resistance by the lesser magistrate. But in England, they took it to its logical conclusion. If the covenant is between the king and the people, and the king violates the covenant, then the people have the right to resist, not the lesser magistrates, because the covenant isn't between the king and the lesser magistrates. It's between the king and the people. Right. Therefore, the people have a right to revolt whether or not the lesser magistrates join them. And that is a much, much more radical idea than what you get on the continent. But ultimately, it's what leads you to John Locke, um, Thomas Jefferson, and others. Yeah. One of the things, back to, back to Luther, that I found and learned in, in your book, I'm not sure if it was in Slaying or one of the others, a curious point that you make, 
that that Luther himself having been deemed a heretic by the church, that was not merely an ecclesiastical judgment. That indictment was also civil against him. So when those princes, the Schmalkaldic princes, come to him and he says, no, 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 you can't do this because of Romans 13, he, in fact, was being hypocritical because he was essentially denying Romans 13. He was not submitting under that uh, indictment that he had as a heretic. I thought that was really interesting. You want to speak anything to that about that circumstance? it, It was curious. Yeah, once Luther is excommunicated and refuses to repent at the Diet of Worms, he is um, declared an imperial outlaw, which means it's literally open season on him. Anybody who found him could kill him on sight with no repercussion. So that's the situation he's in. And yet he's telling the magistrates that if the emperor uh, uses military force against them, they don't have the right to resist. The best they can do is civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. disobey and accept the consequences it's an open question how much luther was himself willing to do that um he certainly did his best to keep out of the hands of the emperor and he on the lesser magistrate's protection of him Mm -hmm. right when the emperor wanted to silence him and condemn his books and burn them and ban them and all of that luther kept them in print and kept writing yeah so we, we do have a situation where uh, I wouldn't exactly call him hypocritical. I would call him inconsistent. In- <laughs> okay, inconsistent. Well, it was a curious point that I'd never, you know, I'd never read anywhere else. But I'm reading the boring guys who don't make history well, exciting. Actually, to, be honest, <laughs> to be honest with you, I never saw anybody else make that point either. Yeah, well. Uh, so... That that's that's sort of my own observation about the situation. Well, consistent though with the with the goings on of the times. So, when when we go to consider resistance theory, the the question is, how do you determine when the king is now a tyrant? What what is legitimate rule versus illegitimate rule? How does the church wrestle with that? Well. We, we actually have to go back to the Middle Ages for this one. Um, and really with some roots in Roman law. The question is ultimately a question of what does the government have the right rights over? Okay. You know, where, 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 what are the boundaries of the rights of government? And, well, probably the simplest way to do this is to take a good look at Genesis 1 and 2. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see are certain things that God gave to humanity prior to the establishment of human government. Now, in, in classical terms, in terms that, that are going to be developed in the Middle Ages and then picked up by John Locke, uh, we can talk about unalienable rights. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rights that God gave us, and therefore that we hold independently of anyone other than God. So the first of these is life. God gave Adam and Eve life. That means no one has the right to arbitrarily deprive them of life. The key word here is arbitrarily. There are provisions for capital punishment in the law and things like that. I don't want to get into that. Sure. But the, the key point here is the there's no way to there's no one has the right to arbitrarily take someone's life. This includes, by the way, yourself. Mm-hmm. You do not have the right to kill yourself because your life was given to you by God. This is the argument why suicide is wrong. You, your life is not your own. 
it is given to you by God. You hold it as a um, as a, a steward of it by God. Therefore, it is important for you to do everything in your power to maintain your life. By the way, medieval theologians actually take this to the point where they say if someone is condemned to be executed, if he has the opportunity to escape, he must do it as long as it does not involve taking the life of someone else. Someone else. Wow. So the next one is liberty. Got to be careful about the definition. This is one we usually get wrong. Um, when I was in school, I was told that liberty was just for freedom. It turns out that that is sort of correct, but really misleading. Liberty, as classically understood, was the right to make decisions and to act freely within boundaries, within mm -hmm. the boundaries set by divine law and natural law. Therefore, liberty is the freedom to act rightly, to act with virtue, to do the right thing, to do the good, not to do evil. The alternative to liberty is license. License is the idea of freedom from restraint. No one can tell me what to do. And if you live according to license rather, rather than liberty, you are licentious, to use mm -hmm. an old word, and you're going to live a vicious life, a life of vice. No one argued that there's a natural right to license. However, modern concepts of freedom are much closer to license than they are to liberty. Yes. And that's largely, I would argue, the result of cultural relativism. If you accept cultural relativism and moral relativism with it, you are in a situation where there is no natural law. There's certainly no divine law. There is no such thing as virtue. And therefore, how do you live a virtuous life? The only thing that's left in terms of freedom is freedom from the constraints that anybody might want to place on you. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we have life, liberty, and if you know your John Locke, the third one is property. Mm -hmm. Property also comes to us in the garden. God tells Adam to tend and protect the garden and eat the fruit. What that means is that Adam had a right to what he produced. He literally had the right to the fruit of his labor. And so this idea of property rights is implicit in the garden itself. Now, the medieval theologians and Locke don't get there that way, but I think that's a good way of, 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 of explaining why it's there. And along with that, by the way, the commandment not to steal makes no sense if there's no property rights. Right, yeah. So we have here Locke's three basic rights, life, liberty, and property, all of which, by the way, were recognized from, by medieval theologians. Though, like I said, for all of them, including Locke, the argumentation was a bit different from what I just gave you. This, I think, my way is the easiest way to understand it biblically. It's also worth noting, however, that there are other institutions that by implication are put in place before government, starting with the family. You know, you have Adam and Eve together before government. Family precedes government. Therefore, government does not have direct authority over family. The government does not have the right to redefine marriage. No, right. It does not have the right to redefine family. And it does not have the right to take away authority over children from their parents. When it does that, it is violating fundamental human rights given by God and is acting, frankly, as an idolatrous 
institution. Okay. So family is there. I would argue education is there implicitly because the parents are, are the ones who are responsible for raising their children, therefore educating them. Um, you can even find, I don't know if we want to go through all the details, you can even find things like uh, arts and sciences in the garden. What you're really speaking of, and, and you haven't used it, and uh, and you've cited some of it in, in your works, but we're really looking at a sort of Kuyperian sphere sovereignty. Um, Absolutely. That That's he, exactly where this goes. Yeah. This, uh, again, I don't think Kuyper argued it exactly this way, but ultimately you can find... Most of Kuiper's spheres, he, had, he never came up with a comprehensive list, but you can find the vast majority of them in place in the garden. And what that means is that these areas should govern their own affairs mm -hmm. with, the, with the state serving its own functions. It's got legitimate functions, but it cannot legitimately overstep those functions by interfering with the proper functioning of another sphere. Right. And so that would have been in the Middle Ages that those sort of boundaries would have been the threshold against which legitimate rule versus illegitimate rule would have been measured. They were a lot less uh, distinct than that. They were a lot less fuzzy okay. uh, or they were a lot more fuzzy. Um, the fact of the matter, though, is that in the Middle Ages, they recognized the need for limited government. The question just was, what are the limitations and who enforces them? Uh, the reason for limited government, by the way, is St. Augustine and original sin. Okay. If you accept the idea of original sin, then you've got to accept the idea that your governing officials are sinners. Yeah, the king can therefore, be <laughs> corrupt as well. Therefore, they're corrupt and corruptible. Um, therefore, they can't be trusted with absolute power. Therefore, you need to set up systems of checks and balances within government and, and strict limitations on what they can and cannot do to prevent them from overstepping their boundaries because... Without them, I guarantee they will. Yeah, this is all medieval. This is all medieval thought. We think of checks and balances as unique to the American Constitution. It isn't. It goes all the way back into the Middle Ages. Well, and we won't go into it. But even if you read some of the history of Calvin's influence when he returns the second time to Geneva and and establishes both the 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 polis the the city there, um, he he does much the same thing. You, you've got uh, you know representative council there that is not just the singular voice certainly is not an ecclesiocracy but uh right. he sets those things in place largely is mimicked in the in the u.s by the time the you know the founders are arranging the organization of this government yeah medieval cities were all governed by representative councils of various types that that wasn't new with calvin okay what but he does systematize it and by the way he he systematized it at the request of the Geneva City Council. Yes. They asked him to rewrite the Constitution. And what's important here is that in Calvin's case, you know, people talk about it being a theocracy or an ecclesiocracy or that Calvin was a, a, a dictator or something like that. Calvin, as a pastor, was a civil servant to the, in the city of Geneva who could have been fired on 24 hours notice. He himself wrote that into the Constitution. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So so a lot of frankly a lot of what is said about Calvin in Geneva and his authority in Geneva is nonsense. He certainly had a great deal of authority in Geneva, but it was what I would describe as a moral authority. It was moral authority based on the fact that he was absolutely brilliant and 
people recognized that. He was also a brilliant communicator, and so he was able to communicate his ideas effectively. Yeah. Um, it, it's more that kind of thing that gave Calvin the authority that he had in Geneva rather than any institutional structure or legal structure that he put in place to give him that authority. Now, let's, let's fast forward back to our contemporary church environment. I mean, you and a few other in, in the orbit that I kind of follow discussing some of these things. Certainly Romans 13 has been a big issue out there that is still being debated. One of the problems that we face now, uh, I, I think, is not only that the government is signaling these kinds of owners, mandates, and requirements, but now we've got another dimension. We've got social media corporations doing it. We've got public media corporations doing it. We've got private companies that are enforcing actually things that are not legislated as mandates, particularly with regard to the pandemic. How does resistance theory equip us to respond to that? Because now you're not just dealing with D.C. You're dealing with... you know youtube and you're dealing with delta airlines and it's coming from all different directions yeah resistance theory isn't designed to address that okay this is one of the areas that i think we really need to come up with a you know we talk about political theology Mm -hmm. Uh, we need to actually come up with a corporate theology what do we do when corporations mandate things for their employees what do we do with corporations that censor christian views and so on to be honest with you i know nobody who is really working seriously in that area i mean there are there are few out there who are making slight forays into it but this is an area i think that we really need to develop because we're in a world today where corporations frequently have more power than governments Mm -hmm. and um at the end of the day the most obvious thing to say is that corporations respond to financial pressure. So, you know, I'm, I'm not one big one for boycotts and things like that. So yeah. that is actually a consideration here. But the other part of that is that it's not just economic pressure that drives corporations. For example, if you look at uh, earnings for films, it turns out that G or PG rated movies tend to do better than R rated movies. And yet the studios keep growing out R rated movies. Yeah. So on a, on a fiscal, it makes no sense at all. So there's something more going on. We need to start addressing larger issues like how, you know, well, well we lost the culture years ago, uh, only we didn't notice it. What do we do to begin aligning the culture, creating a culture that is more, well, more given to liberty than license, um, that is that actually promotes virtue rather than vice and so on? Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to need, we're, we're, we really are in a point where we need to think about figuring over literally decades or lifetime, figuring out ways to rebuild a culture Right now, even economic pressure, I don't think, is going to move the move cor- unless it's really massive disasters. Economic pressure is going to move corporations. Yeah, because there's. Well, that was just you know, it, it occurs to me that it's not merely the singular magistrate or the president or you know a king that that we're dealing with. It's it's uh, 
it's kind of like a Stockholm syndrome of everybody out there that we've just adopted this sort of statist, um, secularist, humanist uh, mindset. And, and even in the church, it largely thinks, well, when we get out there, we've just got to operate in those, in those categories. Uh, I, don't, I don't think most even genuine regenerate believers realize that a lot of times their thinking is drawn from those categories, those kind of presuppositions. It's just been so predominant. It's like, you know, uh, it, it's Hegel, the highest expression uh, of God on earth is the state. Yeah. Well, some of the some of the things I think we could do is learn from our brothers and sisters in communist countries. Mm -hmm. Look at what the church in China is doing. And that, by the way, is an absolutely fascinating story. Mm -hmm. If you go back a decade or so before the current crackdown started, uh, Christians were doing amazing things in China. Uh, There were companies that were owned by non-Christians who only wanted Christian employees you know, I can give you examples, specific examples of really amazing things that Christians were doing in, in the corporate world and elsewhere. But the other place to look, though, is the former Soviet Union. Um, and actually, Václav Havel mm-hmm. um, yeah. has a wonderful essay called The Power of the Powerless um, that I think we would do well to read and study. Because even though he wasn't a believer, as near as I can tell, there's a lot of real wisdom in that about what to do when state, and I think we can apply it to corporations, begin trying to pressure us into things that we don't really believe. Well, by virtue of the Lord's providence, you are now retired, emeritus, as you mentioned earlier. Maybe you could get to work on formalizing this for the rest of us. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that what we really need is someone... Um, uh, I'm a historian. Yeah, but I've read your work, and you make perfect applications that are certainly prescient. Well, yeah, I, I feel like McCoy on Star Trek um, in some <laughs> ways. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not of whatever. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think this is something, though, that, that's going to need, that, that's going to need a lot of people working together mm-hmm. that bring different, training different background different things into the mix i think it is a really good question and it's something that i find sufficiently intriguing that i might just go try to find those people to talk about it yeah good i'll i'll be paying attention to what you end up producing what would you say right now in anticipation possibly of more onerous restrictions coming against the church the government says you can't meet unless you're all vaccinated. What would your advice be to pastors and elders that might be faced with that very real situation? How, how should they think about it? Start off with the question, what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar? Okay. Get that question settled in your mind and act accordingly. Okay. Very wise. Uh, another kind of off-the-cuff uh, question the recent you're familiar with the recent c4 legislation in canada with regards to the um, conversion therapy issue which fundamentally is an attack on genesis 1 and 2 it it considers all that mythology um so we need to be in prayer for those those pastors and saints in canada that are going to have to endure whatever the implications of that might be 
but do you see that as a possibility or an inevitability for the states? Could that kind of thing happen here where we've got a legislation that pretty much bans Christianity? Yes, and it's possible. Yeah. Um, the advantage, we have certain advantages over Canada. Um, the Bill of Rights actually is much more robust than any protections for freedom that they have in Canada. Okay. And we have courts that have proven to be much less sympathetic to statist arguments than one might have expected. So I think that there's hope that way. I think that there is also the fact that there's an increasing mobilization of citizens who are opposed to this, that um, it is less likely to happen in the short term. In the longer term, that's a different question. But at least, it, because frankly, uh, we've, we've allowed a school system that is uh, given to indoctrination more than education mm -hmm. to, to catechize our children on right and wrong and morality rather than doing it ourselves. Uh, we have a media that consistently lies to promote a particular kind of agenda. Um, we have some uh, structures in place, legal structures and things like that, that also, uh, SOGI laws and things like that, that are also going to be a problem. So I think we got a long slog ahead of us. And the long-term, on a human level, I would say the long-term prospects are not good because, again, the younger generations are very heavily invested in uh, critical theory and other kinds of ideas that are frankly antithetical to biblical Christianity. Mm -hmm. When they come into power, there's no telling where things go. But in the shorter term, I think we've got a fair degree of, um, of uh, we've, got a, we've got a period of time in which we, we will probably be allowed to, to make our case publicly. And... Um, at least up to a point, live accordingly. When you look at the church at large, then, what what do you see that's hopeful? What encourages me is that there are some groups out there, not enough in my mind, but at least some groups out there who are very clear about where the lines are and who are, who are quite willing at need to engage in civil disobedience and a variety of other things, to fight back. Now, it's a minority of churches, and when they do it, they're frequently attacked by the churches who won't do it. Yeah. And that's a problem. Um, you know, that, that suggests either a statist outlook on, on the church and its role, or, I hate to say this, um, a desire for popularity, a desire for acceptability. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the worst thing that ever happened to evangelicals is they became popular in the late 70s. Yeah. Because once they became popular, they became addicted to popularity and cultural acceptance. I think Prior, that's absolutely right. And that, I think, is really the root of a lot of the compromises that we're seeing in the church now. You know, that's how you get worship services that consist of a concert followed by a TED Talk. Oh, absolutely. Amen to that. You know, it's what do we have to do? We need to appeal to people. We need to make them comfortable. We need to do all of these things or they won't come. What about the gospel? You know, the gospel is, Jesus tells us the gospel is going to be offensive. Yeah. Where does that fit in? So anyway. 
well that, that's that's a whole different conversation that, that is a whole different conversation but that's that's very very true it just amazes me when i you, you read a little bit of augustine you read the puritans and obviously the, there are historical circumstances there there was always this healthy i, I say healthy mistrust of government but today right. the church is opposite it's like we at, well they just are looking out for us they wanted the best for us where did the mistrust go to uh you need to have a healthy suspicion it doesn't mean you don't use discernment the minute you walk out of the church building you've got to be able to apply discernment to all categories of your life well yeah and what we're seeing here is the influence of the culture on the church and actually a heavy influence of secularism yeah uh, in the secular world, what we see is a cult of ex- experts do everything. I don't change my own oil in my car. Okay. Yeah. We see this infiltrating the church. For a lot of people, evangelism consists of telling their neighbor to come to church so that the professional in the pulpit can win them. Yeah. Or rather than yeah. discipling our children, we leave it to the youth pastor to do it. Oh, yeah. Okay, I mean, I, I can continue here, but what that means then is that when we get experts in lab coats who tell us something, we tend to believe them, and with that, and the, we believe them personally, and we believe them in the church. Yeah, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to I want to read something that you wrote, and and kind of tease out maybe a little bit from it. It's from your book, uh, Why You Think the Way You Do, which is a tremendous read. But it's in the closing, I guess it's the closing chapter called Trajectories, and it's the opening paragraph. You write, quote, Western civilization was the product of the interaction of Roman civilization with Christianity. Now, first of all, I don't think most Christians realize that. If they'll read your book, they'll figure it out. But as Christianity's influence on the Western worldview has declined, it is no accident that our thinking has become more like that of Rome. And since ideas have consequences, since worldviews inevitably shape culture and even their most extreme implications are eventually put into practice, it is also no accident that people in our culture are acting more and more like the Romans. I mean, I dropped the book. I read that. I'm like, that's exactly the point. And you've, you've built up to it with the history that you've, you've written about. But speak to that. We, we've jettisoned Christianity, and, and now we're essentially American Romans. Yeah, I mean, we can go into details here. Um, you know, uh, in Jesus' day, Rome was an empire that pretended to be a republic. Right. Um, in Jesus's day, the Romans were a largely, well, they were an oversexed culture. Mm-hmm. Um, every you go to Pompeii, you will find everything from um, brothels with illustrations on the wall showing you the various uh, services that were provided in their costs mm-hmm. to pornographic oil lamps in people's houses. But they were also an antenatal culture. That is to say, they were heavily engaged in sex, but call it non-reproductive sexual activities, um, because for whatever reason, they didn't want children. It was so bad that the Emperor Augustus actually tried to mandate that Roman noblemen get married and have kids. Mm. 
because he was seeing the problem of the decline of Roman citizens. What did Rome do? They invited people in from the provinces or from across the border, immigration, to handle the work that needed to be done, mostly, by the way, in the form of slaves. Um, but if not slaves and even free people, they would import what they needed to get, to get the labor done. Okay. Um, I mean, we can sort of draw parallel after parallel after parallel. Mm -hmm. Most significantly, though, Rome was a civilization that was radically hierarchical. And this tied in with their, their uh, metaphysical system, it tied in with their religious system, it tied in with their philosophy, all of these kinds of things, which meant that some people were considered superior to others. Mm -hmm. And the superior people, in Rome at least, didn't have to work for a living. Their job was to contemplate beauty and the good and all of that kind of thing and leave mucking around with... with, um, um, with actually physical labor to the lower classes or the poor. Yeah. Um, think about that in connection to America today. First of all, we do have a rigidly hierarchical, well, it's somewhat permeable, but we have a hierarchical society. And if you accept critical theory, we have a rigidly hierarchical society. Right. We have for years told uh, Bill Clinton, everybody should be able to go to college. So we've got this idea that going to college and getting this education is a superior thing to actually mucking around and doing work like carpentry, uh, being an electrician, a plumber, a welder, or whatever. And so suddenly we've got a massive shortage of those, and we're no longer able to produce much of anything at home. Mm. Um, you know, all of these things, there's a lot of things about our ideology that really align with, with the Romans, including, by the way, things like abortion and contraception. Um, the Romans had a variety of contraceptive practices. Remember, we want to avoid babies. But they also engaged in abortion. Um, surgical abortion without anesthetic or, or um, disinfectants, mm. which frequently left women uh, infertile or dead. But when they didn't want to have the baby, if it was, for example, uh, conceived in adultery, women would do this to get rid of it, to avoid the problem. Mm -hmm. Unwanted children were literally flushed down the drain. Yeah. Um, so you see a devaluing of children. I mean, th there's just a host of things that that are, are parallels, uh, even all the way up to uh, elements of sexual behavior that I'm not going to discuss here. Yeah. Um, I, I think we are in danger of becoming well i think we've already become a society very nearly as corrupt as rome was wow well this this was uh just astounding i i i like the conclusions that you that you gave there you point out that the all the greatest achievements of western civilization and you you list a litany of things there abolition of slavery inalienable rights that you mentioned dignity of individuals rise of science all these things you say all were the products of ideas that have roots in the bible and a christian worldview and i don't even think the church knows that right well let's just take science for a moment just to pick one of them science if, if you read the early modern scientists they all saw what they were doing as a theological activity mm -hmm. science is based on 
biblical beliefs that, first of all, God created the universe, God is rational, therefore the universe has laws that it follows, because a rational God would create a rational universe. Human beings are made in the image of God, therefore we may not be as perfectly rational as God is, but we have a degree of rationality as well. That means we should be able to look at the universe on the basis of the logos, on the basis of the fact that you know, God has revealed himself, that, that the word is there, that reason is there, that it's part of who we are. We should be able to look at the universe and discern the patterns or the laws that God put in it. And furthermore, this is a theological activity because what we're doing is exploring and revealing the mind of God. Mm-hmm. Kepler, uh, the great astronomer, said that what he was doing was thinking God's thoughts after him. After him. Okay. Now, contrast that with a secular idea of creation. The universe explodes into existence out of nothing, even though we know that nothing comes from nothing. Okay. Uh, But for some reason, it it explodes into existence, and at that point, the laws of physics are created and everything else. We can't go past the Big Bang because... The laws of physics don't exist prior to it. Okay. So, for some reason, the universe explodes out of nothing. Um, By the laws of physics, eventually, gravitation and things like that cause stars and planets and things like that to congeal out of this this mass. Um, On at least one of those planets, organic chemicals develop. We only call them organic, by the way, because from our perspective, they are. Um, then those organic chemicals came together. And even though the first law of biology is that life doesn't come from non-life, in this case, it did. It just had to have enough time. (laughs) Well, my daughter refers to this as the Frankenstein theory. You get all the pieces, you put them together, you hit it by lightning, and it's alive! (laughs) Okay. So, so, um, yeah, and then sometime after life is created, DNA somehow develops. And then DNA mutates through random chance, actually really guided by the immutable laws of physics, mm-hmm. um, to produce your brain. Under these circumstances, why would you even assume that, A, the universe is understandable, B, that you're capable of understanding it? There is no logical reason why that mythology gives you the possibility to do science yeah but christianity does and it's no accident that chris that modern science arose uniquely in the western world because the western world was uniquely the place where christianity was given free reign to pursue these kinds of issues yeah you know if you're a buddhist and believe that the world is an illusion, or a Hindu and wouldn't believe it's a dream in the mind of God, or a Native American who believes that dreams are more real than the waking world, or a Muslim who, in classical Islam, believes that everything happens by the direct will of Allah and natural law is, in fact, apostasy because it would limit Allah's freedom. In none of those cases are you going to do the kinds of work that is needed to develop modern science. Only with the assumptions of the biblical worldview do you get there. Wow. So when is your... 
similarly with human rights, only with assumptions about people being made in the image of God do you get inalienable rights, human rights, and all those kinds of things. Yeah. This is even admitted by atheists. Well, and I've, I've got to apologize. You wrote a book on Imago Day, didn't you? Yeah. Okay, yeah. and I have not read that, so I, I've got to get that. I did a study a couple of years on Imago Day. Just amazing depth there. Uh, that, that actually, uh, I thought maybe you were going to go to with regards to, um, you know, render to Caesar, render to God, because you're dealing with an issue of image and ownership and title and all of that. But um, fascinating. Well, uh, what a, anything? I, listen, I got all day, but I, I want to respect your time. It's an honor to talk to you. Um, I'll put links on um, the webpage for this episode that points people to your books. Um, I saw you post something on Facebook that sort of hinted at a forthcoming uh, yeah, book. Um, you want to mention actually, that or not? Yeah, actually, as soon as <clears throat> I uh, finish the podcast, I'm going to finish the introduction to that. Um, it's a book called Christians Who Changed Their World. At least that's the working title. Um, this came, I, uh, I worked a lot with Chuck Colson during the last eight years of his life. Uh, particularly in a program then called the Centurions Program, now called the Colson Fellows. I'm still working with them. Um, but uh, they asked me to do a talk called Christians Who Changed Their World just before the commissioning of a class of Centurions. Chuck, King Wilberforce, that was his hero. Um, and so I'm thinking, all right, who else? Luther, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. All of these are just way too easy. So I picked a whole bunch of people that nobody had ever heard of and showed ways in which they lived out their biblical worldview that made an impact in their own time and place. Okay. And Chuck loved it. And it turned to a long series of articles at Breakpoint, probably about it. And um, through Canon Press, we've, we've, uh, they, picked, they selected ones that they wanted to include, and we put them into a book uh, that will be out sometime this year, I imagine. I don't know exactly when because uh, we're still in the uh, early days here. Well, I've edited the text, uh, followed their recommendations, and made the changes the editor requested. I've got to finish the intro, and then it's going to be a question of when it gets in the pipeline. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that. It will be uh, on my read list for sure. No, thank you. And a couple of other ones from you. But I'll encourage folks, uh, you know, go on Amazon is where I ordered. Actually, not true. I did order some directly from Canon. But uh, Glenn S. Sunshine, go find his stuff and read it. It is history. Not everything you've written is history. But the history that you have written, uh, incredible. You write in such a way that it makes it engaging and it is certainly applicable, and the church today needs to know its history because its history is tied not only to Scripture but everything that the Lord has been doing since the closing of the canon, um, and and we neglect it at our own peril. So thank you so much. Anything else you want to speak to? Um, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, so thank you very much for having me. Well, I really appreciate it. I may... Uh, impose on you at some point in the future and we'll discuss some other things because i just love the way you write and the way you think and and uh, your willingness to speak out on issues that are not real popular in some circles but nevertheless we need to hear and be provoked to well thank you i'll look forward to that all right glenn thank you sir i appreciate it and that concludes this episode of the bud zone the bud zone podcast is a member of the christian podcast community 
where you can find scores of biblically sound podcasts for your edification and encouragement. Go to christianpodcastcommunity.org to discover more. You are now leaving the Bud Zone. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed during the recording of this show.